tonight we'll start all over, okay? I got a couple dollars left, okay? Glad you do. I'm busted. Welcome to the Magic Lantern Podcast, an ongoing informal discussion of the films we love and the things we love about them. I am Erica Wong. And I am Cole Rowling. Each episode of The Magic Lantern will be devoted to one film that we alternately select, and we will discuss why it is significant to us. Welcome to episode 30, which is Cole Selection. What have you chosen? This time around, I have chosen The Exiles from 1961, directed by Kent McKenzie and starring Yvonne Williams, Homer Nish, Tommy Reynolds, Rico Rodriguez, Clifford Ray Sam, Clydeen Parker, and Mary Donahue. It covers about 12 hours in the lives of a group of young Native American friends who live in the Bunker Hill district of Los Angeles in 1958. I'm already feeling a little pressure about getting this episode really right because this is an extremely personal choice for me. Something that people might not know, my close friends know and people that have known me for a while, I am a member of the Comanche Nation of Oklahoma. And because of that and other reasons, this film is an extremely important film to me and something that I really hope everyone goes out and makes an effort to see. And because of that, you feel a specific responsibility? I do. I want to make sure and do a really good job with this episode. And I would note for our listeners, you're wearing your Apache Warrior shirt, (laughs) not for nothing. It's the town I grew up in. This was completely an accidental sartorial decision. But yes, we'll get into a lot more about Oklahoma history, my personal history, Native American history in this episode, because you can't really grasp how important this film is without knowing a lot of these things. To start with, though, it's a semi-documentary feature film. It is built on a collaboration between Kent McKenzie, the director, and the principles of the film, and it's sort of obvious when you look at the structure. Most of the audio is voiceover. Most of the audio is spoken and culled from a series of interviews that he did with the principals from which he crafted the visuals, the narrative part of the feature. He kind of cobbled their stories together into this series of episodes that goes from dusk to dawn on an average Los Angeles weekend for these characters. And at the same time, it feels as though that semi-documentary aspect means that these characters can be representative of larger things that were happening to people of the time in their specific circumstance. Yes, specifically to natives. And something else I guess I should say, I am going to slip in between Native Americans, Native, Indian, all of these terms, because to be honest, that is how we refer to ourselves. We use a variety of those words at any given time. I know some people are probably more stringent about it, but in casual conversation with the friends I grew up with, Indian is not offensive, not necessarily a pejorative. The narrative of it is structured so that we follow three characters primarily. We follow the story of Yvonne, who is an expectant mother. We follow the story of Homer, who is... Yvonne's husband, and the other major thread in the story is Tommy. Diplomatically, I would call him a Lothario, but he's closer to a borderline rapist, 
a great percentage of the time. And they each represent a very specific perspective when it comes to addressing the issue of Native American assimilation into urban areas in the 50s. It also seems reasonable that these stories could also reflect other minorities' experiences of assimilation. Absolutely. It could reflect other minorities, other cultures that have been pushed to the margins of society, not even necessarily racial minorities, because I often was reminded in certain sections of this of Lionel Rogosin's On the Bowery, which is primarily Anglos. It just has a lot to do with those people who have been pushed to the edges of society because of poverty, because of class, because of social status. There are some very specific issues that are addressed with this, though, that are unique to Indian experience. Well, let's talk about the first one. Okay. The reason that they're there. Okay. And I had to look this up. I had no knowledge of this whatsoever, which is a pretty sad statement, I think. I'm going to have to work really hard to rein in my inclination to try to teach everybody these things, because the thing that you're about to talk about feels to me like it should be as prevalent in the American vernacular as Jim Crow, as Brown versus Board of Education, as a lot of things like that. Native American history, to be such a prominent part of the development of the United States, is woefully underrepresented in the popular culture, or in just history at large, for that matter. Well, I had a Google screen open constantly through the viewing of this movie. I was looking things up all the time because there were terms consistently that I had never heard before. And so I realized how uninformed I was. Which brings me to my first history lesson as a whiter-than-white individual who did not get, I think, the education we should all be getting. So I hope when you listen to this episode, you will also start Googling some of these things and learn some more stuff. I will say, even going up in Oklahoma the way I did, it was not readily available. It's work that you have to do on your own. It may be different now, some almost 30 years later in Oklahoma high schools. But at the time, we were still woefully underrepresented in all of those classes. What we've been referring to specifically is the Indian Relocation Act of 1956, also known as termination, which if you hear that term, it's not going to go anywhere good, really. Termination is a much bigger program, I should point out. Termination refers to a broad array of laws that were enacted that started in the 40s and went all the way through the mid-60s that just included this one. And it's not as grim as it sounds exactly, because it wasn't geared towards the complete annihilation. It was geared towards the dismantling of the tribal system, is what they meant by. Which is pretty grim. (laughs) Yes, but when you say termination, that sounds almost like... They weren't going to murder them. Right, thank you. The idea was that a relocation program would be started to move Indians off of the reservation system and to relocate to urban cities. Mm -hmm. The thinking was that there were going to be more jobs available, that it was going to reduce poverty, which is endemic, unfortunately, in the reservation system as a whole, especially for people living in the most isolated rural areas. So it was a sort of go west, move to the big city concept. These were the reasons that were given. Yes. 
In 1950, only 6% of Native Americans lived in urban areas, Mm -hmm. whereas the majority of the American population, in contrast, was heavily urbanized and had become more so. As part of this program, there were quotas put in place. And by 1954, just prior to when we take up with these characters, approximately 6,200 Native Americans had been relocated to cities. And then by 1960, over 31,000 people had moved to urban areas. So it was a process of a decade or so, as we had mentioned, with a large number of people moving. But unfortunately, the long-term effects of the program meant that tribe members were isolated from their communities. They faced racial segregation and discrimination. Again, something that I think other minority groups Mm, can mm -hmm, appreciate. Definitely. Many of them found only low-paying jobs with absolutely no advancement available. The poverty thing, and how you mentioned it applies to other minority cultures as well, one interesting thing about this when you look at where these guys were starting from, the average income in 1950 of someone living on a reservation was $950 a year. The average black citizen's income was 2000 The average white person's income was 4000 So blacks were making half Indians on reservations were making less than a quarter. And through this program, you start to see whole communities back in the original rural areas dissolving. Mm -hmm. And so the person who is left has nothing to go back to. That is a key point that I definitely wanted to mention. So thanks for bringing it up. Like I mentioned, they gave specific reasons for implementing this program, all of them being altruistic and beneficial. And we want to raise you up out of the cycle of poverty when a really sad but very definite byproduct of it, and I think specifically by design, was once we move you off this land, we dissolve the reservation, you now have nowhere to go back to. If this does not work, you are now adrift. So if you took part in this program, like a number of the characters in this film did, you have no choice but to be a participant in and to be pursuant of, quote-unquote, the American dream which is most embodied by Yvonne and her struggle. We see her first walking through a very busy market. She is an impossibly tiny, young-looking woman in her fluffy sweater and the bow in her hair. She looks so incredibly innocent, and we know that she is with child at this point, and she has an expression to me that signals a lost child. I wonder about that, talking about her coping mechanism versus everyone else's. Her coping mechanisms in this film are very different than the men. And I think it's indicative of her character. It's not just an issue of she doesn't partake in the alcohol because she's pregnant, for instance, as an example of how she does things differently. I think it's very much an issue of her method of survival. She is developed by not having extremes of emotion. She does not get up. And she does not get down. The reason I associate her with the lost child is she seems really unmoored from everything. There are certain elements that bring a smile to her face. It might be a person. It might be a photo. It might be a toy. But those elements all have sort of an innocence and naivete about them? They do. What would also delight a very young person. Okay. But she's not simple. 
No, she's not ignorant. She's just very young. They all strike me as being very young people. Early 20s. Yes. So I, I think I have the same reaction to her as I would to any very young woman who is pregnant in a city that she doesn't know. Mm. And clearly also doesn't have much of a support system. Her aspirations certainly aren't simple. Like I said, she is probably, of all of the characters, the one who is most concerned with this notion of the American dream and assimilating and being a part of that society. And more importantly, her unborn child taking part in it. She specifically mentions in her voiceover, all of her dialogue is delivered in voiceover. And she specifically mentions she wants her child to speak English. She wants the child to have the things that she never had, which is the first instance I realized this is an immigrant story. Opportunities for education, Mm -hmm. very specifically. And how odd is it that that's what we have to call this? Can you imagine being a part of a culture who is indigenous, who was here before anyone else, and your story is an immigrant story? You are now having to navigate this completely unfamiliar territory in a country that you were the first inhabitants of. I can't, actually. This is why one reason... I feel like it's so important for people to see this and understand a lot of things about it and understand where it comes from and why you don't see these things represented. This is its going to be intensely personal for me and I may get emotional and it's going to be one of the episodes that I'm going to have an incredibly hard time keeping under two hours because there is so much in it that I feel like people don't know that they need to know. Well, I agree with you and I disagree with you. Agreed as I mentioned, that context is very important here and informs a lot of what we see. But at the same time, she doesn't strike me any differently than any other young woman who is a mother from a poor background who is looking for something greater than what she has. I think we've, well, I say we, I've heard my grandparents say the same thing. Sure. Okay. Understandable. As a symbol, as a larger symbol for that She definitely works. The thing that we just simply cannot remove from the conversation, we cannot divorce from the whole thing, is why they are exiles. It's inextricable. We can't talk about it as something that stands separate from that. Totally agreed with you. I think that the latter part of what I was saying maybe serves a purpose for folks who don't have that shared experience okay. as a way in. Oh, okay. This is not so inaccessible that you have to know the history to be able to really feel something about what you're watching. True. Does that make sense? That makes perfect sense. Absolutely. Because I also was thinking the whole time, how does this experience correspond to, say, the Latino experience in Los Angeles in the 40s and 50s? It was probably almost identical. The only thing being that underlying thread of this was our home. We were the native population. And there is something about that, that unless you fully grasp it, you miss something about the movie. But you're right. You don't absolutely have to relate to it to understand the struggles of a marginalized culture in an urban area. And I think to be anything other than a tourist, which is what I felt like in the beginning, you really should begin to educate yourself with these gaps that you might have. And I think also it's very important to note that Kent McKenzie set out not to make what I saw described as the Ashcan documentary, which is 
finding people in low circumstances in poverty and almost sort of wallowing in those images of deprivation. And this was more about a realistic look at life. Yeah, definitely. He was not engaging in poverty tourism. It's one of those things where we look at it now and you might react really strongly to things as if this was made today. You can't do that. You have to think of it in the context of 1958 through 1961. Things were not the same. This existed in a time prior to pride movements, for instance, which we'll get into later. There's a section of the film later that specifically relates to social consciousness and the movements of the late 60s and the comparison of those things. I am sure people could get offended at the notion that Kent McKenzie, a white man, was telling this story. The thing about it is there wasn't infrastructure or ways for natives to get access to the things that you needed to tell this story. Without his help in 1961, it probably could not have been done. So he did the best thing he could do. He lived and learned about these characters and how they lived their day-to-day life and built their story the way they wanted from the things they told him about their day-to-day experience. Something you mentioned a moment ago, it's not difficult for me to understand that this is something not happening now because I'll come back again to my touchstone, Yvonne, and it is very much the plight of a young woman in the late 50s Mm -hmm. as well. This idea of having a family without question and having no support from your spouse to do so and no job and no way to earn your own living, essentially. Also because you don't have the education or skills in order to be able to do that. Mm. So that to me feels also very recognizable and something that I will never forget as what was in my past that thankfully I did not have to go through. So of all the characters in the film, she is doubly exiled, essentially. She is the one who is carrying a dual burden, both of being native in the city and being a woman in the late 50s, dealing with these specific issues. This is my opportunity to try not to be constantly strident and Mm -hmm. talk about, think of any minority you can come up with, and then think of the women in that minority, and they are always going to be at the lowest rung. Gotcha. When we follow her as she leaves the market and we return to the Bunker Hill tenement where she and her husband Homer live, and Homer is there, and he and his friends, they are assembling to get ready for a night on the town. She prepares dinner for everyone, footing the bill, it seems, for them and at least half a dozen of their other friends. And not a word is exchanged between the two of them. No one acknowledges her particularly. And I wasn't clear at the beginning if they all lived in this apartment together, which would not be an odd situation for people new to the city, and Mm -hmm. especially in the same community that you have come from, to all be bunking together. And I'm still not sure what the answer is. They could, multiple people could live in that apartment. I think it's less that in this case, because she does specifically mention in her voiceover, the boys coming over. And I think boys is really the operative word. Mm -hmm. They act like boys. Yeah, there's a bit of the late 50s delinquent in them and the musical accompaniment when you listen to the soundtrack. The soundtrack is bookended on either end by native songs. You've got the opening credit sequence, which is a series of still photographs of various scenes of warriors and teepees 
and it has native song underneath that. And at the very end, that comes up again. But in between, the soundtrack is The Revels, this sort of late 50s rock and roll group who you're hearing over the jukeboxes in bars and on car radios. And it starts in this section as they're all sitting around getting ready to go out. That's what they're listening to. That use of music specifically in this most closely reminded me of Killer of Sheep, which we've talked about before Mm. on the show. There are a lot of Killer of Sheep parallels with this. The other big thing I want to talk about, which we had mentioned briefly earlier, is that it's a little disorienting at first because we realize that the dialogue between characters, not the voiceover, is clearly recorded afterwards. Oh, sure. So it sets up this idea for me that almost felt kind of like a dream. It feels a little bit like that. It also makes me aware of what had to be budgetary constraints for the film and how difficult it had to be to record sound on site. And you've often got many people talking at once Mm -hmm. as well. Though somehow it manages to seem artful rather than a terrible circumstance that they had to get through. It's a little distracting to me. Is it? It's the one thing about it. I really got into it. It's artful, yes, but it also feels somewhat artificial, and there are a couple of sections that it takes me out of because of sound levels more than anything else. There are a couple of characters in particular whose voices cut through and are louder than everyone else's, And so it doesn't feel natural. It doesn't feel like it is occurring in regular rhythms and in regular exchanges with each other. It's pitched in a way that it feels a little artificial and removes me for just a second. It's not hard to get back into, but it does push me back a step. After the first couple of minutes, I was really into it because we start first with Yvonne's voiceover and that sets a tone. Mm -hmm. And then as I fell into it, it was that sense again of everyone being outside of whatever action was taking place. They're so far removed from seeming to have any kind of agency sometimes Mm -hmm. in their own life. Homer's a very passive person. Mm -hmm. Yvonne is almost otherworldly. Tommy is a more earthy character. Definitely aggressive. And even for him, it feels actually quite appropriate. I don't think I'm articulating this very well. Hopefully I will throughout. It makes sense, though, now that you phrase it that way. I, I definitely see the sound working the way you are describing. So she has silently prepared their dinner and served them, and they have had their meal and gotten ready, and it cuts to them dropping her off, in front of an all-night theater where she goes to watch the movies by herself while the four men go off for an evening of carousing between two places in particular, the Ritz and the Columbine, which were two pretty prominent Los Angeles skid row places, the Columbine in particular being where the native population hung out. It's these two bars that really drive home this issue for me of representation being important. It's easy to discount it when it's a family unit or a group of friends that is in an apartment that is in an individual small location. But when you go to a public spot in 1958, when this was shot, that's full of Indians. Yes, they're all Mm non-whites. And it's very, very clear. It's not as though there's one white person walking by on the street or one random person in the back of the bar. It's truly all Mm non-whites. With one major exception, which comes later. In my small little world as a kid, all of that seemed perfectly normal. I grew up in the southwest corner of Oklahoma in a town called Apache, 
native name, in Caddo County, native name, part of the Comanche tribe. And so that part of Oklahoma prior to statehood was the Kiowa Comanche Apache section of reservation land. And so those were the tribes that I was primarily surrounded by. My friends were often one, if not more than one of those tribes. So it wasn't out of the ordinary until I got out of the little place where I grew up and saw, oh, the rest of the world isn't like this. Oklahoma, yes. Oklahoma is Indian territory still to this day. The population is still well represented there. It was the one place maybe, aside from New Mexico, Arizona, I guess, in some cases, where you still see a lot of Native Americans as a matter of course. But in Los Angeles in 1961, or some other urban centers prior to the Relocation Act that you mentioned, you didn't see it. And to see such a concentration of Indian faces on the screen for someone in 1961 who didn't live in Oklahoma, for whom it wasn't routine, had to be shocking. And if you were Native, had to be exciting. Representation is a big deal. People go to the movies for all kinds of reasons, mostly to be entertained or educated, but often to see themselves on screen in some way. Well, isn't that the worst part of this story is that they actually couldn't see this movie? That is... In large numbers. Right. After being really well received, it disappeared. It sort of just vanished into nothing for a long, long time. It was made into 16 millimeter dupes that you could use for educational purposes, but it was not screened and not preserved until finally around 2008, a restoration process started and a DVD came out and that's when I saw it in 2010, a little bit after Milestone had released it on home video. Practically 50 years after Mm -hmm. it came out. So yeah, that is a really sad part of it. The first authentic depiction probably of natives on screen living a normal day-to-day life and you couldn't find it. By the time I was old enough to start seeing movies and recognize those things and people who looked like people I knew, other Indian faces on screen. I was born in 1970, so it was the mid to late 70s by the time I was cognizant of movies and that sort of thing. And by that time, we were into the period of revisionist Westerns and all of those sorts of things. And native actors were actually finally being played by Indians. Will Sampson in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, for instance. The cast members in Little Big Man, which, while still broad, finally portrayed them as actual human beings. Characters that laugh, characters that cry, instead of being stoic, noble savages, or a raiding war party, which were the options before that. And another sad part of that is, I think most of us could probably name the Indian actors we know on one hand. Oh, sure. There are and a maybe handful, not use all the fingers. There are a handful of prominent ones, probably. Everybody knows Will Sampson, maybe. Everybody knows who? Graham Greene? Wes Studi. Wes Studi would be the other big one, probably. But yeah, aside from just a handful, there aren't many that are household names, which... When you look at the long checkered history of the minority representation in Hollywood films. Of all minorities. Right. I don't want to get into a whole we have it worse than everybody thing because it happening to any group is terrible. But in particular, it really stings for the fact that for years, even up to recent day, 
we were not allowed to play ourselves. At least black actors. I mean, you did have blackface and stuff in the beginning of Hollywood films, but it didn't take long before black actors got to play black characters. Asian actors got to play Asian characters, usually fringe characters, and the main character would still be a white man in yellow face, but other Asian actors were on screen. But Indians were Italian actors, Jewish actors, Latino actors. So few of them, if any, were actual Native Americans. And that goes all the way up to the actress who plays Pocahontas in Terrence Malick's The New World. She's Peruvian and German. Johnny Depp playing Tonto, a Comanche, in, what, 2013 is when that film came out? Three years ago. Can you imagine if you said, oh, yeah, we've got the perfect actor to play Martin Luther King. We've got the perfect actor to play the Dalai Lama. Johnny Depp. It doesn't occur to people what an absurd thing this is to keep putting non-native actors in native roles and how insulting it is. One of the topics... I have to check my levels because I'm looking... <laughs> to look screaming. to see if I'm yelling. And just have to slow down. Okay, sorry. Go well, ahead. again, one of these history lessons uh, tangents that I went off on was history of representation in film. And there are really interesting sections on that. And yes, it goes on up until very, very recently. And I'm sure we'll continue mm -hmm. on. Yeah. Who were our Indian acting icons up until recently? Burt Lancaster, great Indian. Audrey Hepburn, of all people. Iron Eyes Cody, that dude was Italian. I have what is possibly a tone-deaf question for okay. you. Again, I'm whiter than white. It's British or Irish and British and some more British and possibly some Scottish. That's as white as it gets for me. Okay. Now, you, on the other hand, are actually blonde-haired and mm. blue-eyed. Right. And yet you're a member of the Comanche Nation. Did that ever affect you growing up or even now? When we talk about representation, what does that mean for you? Even now it does. Even now in just choosing this for the podcast, I had to think a lot about it because it definitely has affected the way I've looked at things. You say you come at this as an outsider. I come at this as a half-breed. I'm inside and outside. But I am such that I never really fit on either side because of the way I look. I'm very fair, blonde-haired, blue-eyed, like you said, and was even more so as a kid. My hair was platinum when I was young, and I was very fair. And when we would go, for instance, to the Indian hospital, it was, what is this little white kid doing here? I don't talk about it a ton with a lot of people because there's this whole thing of every white girl in Oklahoma and Texas in this part of the country Somewhere along the line, their grandmother was a Cherokee princess. I and watch lots of Finding Your Roots on PBS, <laughs> and every single person yeah. thinks that they have Native American blood. Every single... Right. They even did a special segment on it, yeah. a little brief thing of every person saying that. And so I don't want to be viewed with that skepticism, so I don't talk about it as much as I'd like to, probably, but it means a whole lot to me, specifically because of my grandmother. It comes down through my dad's side from her. She was born in 1918. She would have been of the age that could have taken part in this Relocation Act in 1956. She would have been 38, where these characters are early to mid-20s. She would have been a little older than them, but she certainly would have been within the group that would have been offered this and could have taken advantage of it. So it could have very directly affected my family in a huge way. 
there were people that lived in the town where she grew up and lived her whole life, essentially, that did take part in it, one of whom is now a very notable powwow announcer, but that went through a ton of difficulty when he first moved to Los Angeles, but he's still there. She didn't do it, but I'm sure she had friends that did. I'm sure she had people close to her that took up this offer and went there, and it was a real struggle for them. So, yeah, it means a whole lot. And the representation thing for me is a complicated issue because I have one foot on either side of that. But I think it also makes me particularly attuned to how important it is that both cultures understand each other, being kind of a bridge between the two. So I'm hypersensitive about it probably internally. You don't see it manifest on the outside a ton. This may be the most you and I have ever even talked about it by the time we get to the end of this show. But yeah, I don't say a ton. I don't want to be that person that looks like, I'm sure you are using this for some sort of credibility, although what does it get you? And I don't want to have to pull out my card and say, no, look, I am actually a registered member of the Comanche tribe. It's an obnoxious thing almost that it's romanticized Mm -hmm. and then vilified. Yeah. The closest comparable I have is specific family members in my extended family who are biracial. Mm -hmm. And it's that same question that I know that they've heard, which is, what are you? Mm -hmm. And that you are supposed to pick one. Right. Yeah, I don't look Comanche. You wouldn't know it to look at me. So I don't get asked that question a whole bunch. But I did encounter issues with it as a kid because I went to a really small country school and I lived in tribal housing from when I was 10 until I was 18 and moved out to go to college. But it's not the same type of tribal housing you think of when you think reservation. People have a very specific idea of what reservation living is. And in Oklahoma, it is not like that. I grew up in a little small town, a population of about 1,500. And we lived in the country about three miles outside of town on a mile stretch that was Comanche land. And in the early 80s, there was a program where the tribe would help tribal members afford housing that you couldn't otherwise normally afford through grants and breaks and cheaper mortgages and all this stuff. And so that's how we got, my family, the first home we ever outright owned. Up until then, we rented, rented, rented. And so it is tribal housing, but it's more of a subdivision is what it looks like. It's like the tract housing that I grew up in, sure. basically. But all that stuff is Comanche tribal land, if you didn't know. You've been there and seen it, but I didn't know if you knew specifically that that whole stretch of that mile is all Comanche-administrated housing. I did know that. Okay. And the tribe does a lot of stuff like that. There are two main aims of the Comanche Nation at this point in terms of what they offer tribal members. There's the arm that provides services of all sorts, career stuff, health stuff, housing, and then there is the arm that is devoted to preserving the culture. And there are about 16,000 tribal members right now, which shrinks every year. And that's all over the country. That is registered tribal members of the Comanche Nation everywhere. I think that bears repeating, 16,000. Yep. It's not a lot of people. Only 1% of whom speak the language still. Interestingly enough, my sister Haley is taking as part of her degree program, starting in January, taking part in that program at the end of which she will be fluent in speaking and writing Comanche. And so she'll be one of that 1% that is perpetuating the culture, hopefully, 
because most of the speakers now are all elders and they're not going to be around a long and time. And elderly specifically. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm extremely proud of her for doing that. It will be something that is extremely important, I think, and that she will be very glad that she did when she's done with it. I think this is the logical place to get back to the movie and specifically Homer. Okay. Homer's voiceover in this part, when they arrive at the Ritz to begin their evening of drinking and dancing and singing and all these things that they end up doing, the things he says fall somewhere in between Yvonne's pragmatic optimism and her participation in the American dream and what we will eventually see as Tommy's cynicism and despair, I think. Homer occupies the space in the middle who realizes the futility of this cycle that he's going through. And let's talk about where that actually comes from. Because it's from some specific experiences, which I think, again, are pretty recognizable to other folks. He talks about dropping out of high school, Mm -hmm. starting drinking, and how smart he thought he was. That I think life was going to be an endless opportunity for him. I'm putting words in his mouth. Yeah, it does come across that way. But he joins the Navy and realizes that it was even worse than where he came from. And he had, I think, some opportunities to, quote unquote, straighten out, but he didn't take them. And now it's just this endless cycle of the same conversations over and over again and drinking and waking up and drinking and waking up. He exhibits a self-awareness that I don't ascribe to 80% of the rest of the people you see in this film. He knows the futility of this thing that he is engaging in and yet somehow can't break free? Do you think that is because at this point he sees the dearth of opportunities that exist, that he is much more realistic about things after having gone through the experience with the Navy and failing somewhat and ending up here? I think we have to look at the experiences which are implied, which I think we can glean from the time. So if you think about when the army was desegregated, Mm-hmm. which wasn't that long before this point. Right. So we have to kind of guess at what he would have gone through. And we also don't see him doing things like going on a job interview. And imagine what a completely depressing experience that must have been over and over again. Even if he would have the wherewithal to break this cycle and really go for something, mm-hmm. I can just as easily see him, even though we have very few non-whites in this film, the presence of that group oppressing him. He doesn't talk about oppression, Mm -hmm. but it's got to be this pervasive thing. And in this specific sequence, when he is then reading a letter from home and goes into, not a flashback, but he's imagining... A reverie. A reverie of what I'm assuming his father and mother have written about what their day is like. Mm -hmm. And we go to that specific scene and you look at that landscape and it offers no opportunity. So you've come from someplace with no specific opportunity other than what's been going on for generation upon generation. But you've got people there that love you and you have the support system that Yvonne doesn't have, for instance, you might not have opportunity, but you have comfort with family and you do not have to suffer indignity after indignity, like you mentioned, that would be implied in the job search process, for instance, or trying to find an apartment. All of these things that you would run into because 
you are Indian in the urban area. It's not your place. The other place is at least home, and you would not suffer those things. It is, but I think, again, about that almost universal idea of having a dream of something else that is beyond this little tract of land that you grew up in. And that's for any of us, Mm -hmm. I think. And I look at that world, the reverie world, his original home, and think about the world moving beyond it, and it's stuck in one place. And I also think about the actual practical realities of supporting a large family with little to no income and you watch your parents getting older and also the other reality of life expectancy for this group very low Mm -hmm. low ages we're not talking about i can think about my parents growing old into their 80s and 90s and we're well off and they can support you see at least two no you see at least three kids in this situation then you've got homer there are possibly others It doesn't feel like a very romantic proposition that I would think, oh, my old Kentucky home, really. I've got this great place to go back to. No, adrift, unmoored, like you put it earlier, is exactly it. No home left, sadly, is what a lot of them are facing. Their choice is to make their way in brand new urban 1950s, 1960s America or have nothing. The choices are being erased. This termination... An assimilation program is pretty complete at this point. The other part of this reverie as well is they're speaking in their own language, Mm -hmm. which can only be used in a specific area. It's all of these things set up for a termination point from these outside forces. And what I think of is almost the trap of having the wherewithal to know that you want something else and are quite possibly capable of getting it. But then each situation that you seek out, you realize you don't always have all of the skills or will not be given the opportunity to achieve that dream. Even if you did, we're reaching an intersection here in American culture and specifically in Native culture where questions of Native identity are going to start to loom really large. And the pendulum does start to swing back the other way in the late 60s. But right now in 1958, when they're making this, There's not a lot of pride. There is shame most of the time. There's no point and no place where these characters can stand up and proudly say, I am Native American. And that is something that's important and needs to be preserved. And you need to recognize that. That type of thing has not yet become something you can do in 1961 when this film came out. They would be forging the frontier of that if they were to be doing that. Mm -hmm. There would be very few other people out there showing them or helping them to do it. They would be the only ones. It's such a fallow period. They're in that kind of Mm -hmm. nadir. Which again is why this was so important that this was made and thankfully found and preserved that representation at least to be able to say yes, that's me on screen similar to the way Killer of Sheep depicted the day-to-day lives of black Americans at the time in those situations, in those neighborhoods. Not every movie has to be a blockbuster or rife with action. It can simply be a story that people can recognize themselves in, and that is just as important as loftier artistic things. And certainly Kent McKenzie and the people in the film couldn't have known at that point that they were truly capturing a snapshot of a time. I think he did. I think McKenzie was far ahead of his time. I think that guy knew exactly what he was doing because of the very specific way he went about it. 
Do you think it was because his short before this about Bunker Hill or what he had sought out to do, another story that he had worked on about this neighborhood disappearing and elderly people being pushed out? I think a little bit of that, but I also think he was just a particularly empathic guy. I think as an artist, he was just one of those people that had the insight to recognize this is something that needs to be recorded for posterity. Sometimes it's luck with that. Sometimes it's right place, right time. But in McKinsey's case in particular, because he didn't do a lot else of he work of his very own. He died young. Yeah, he died in 1980. He didn't do a lot else of his own. He worked, did a lot of work for other people, but the stuff he specifically made that was important to him, he spent three years doing this, living with these people, putting this together. This project was scheduled to be done in eight weeks, but they kept running out of money, running out of money, running out of money. Cast members went to jail or vanished. And so they had all of these roadblocks to getting it done, and he stuck with it setback after setback because of how important it was. And you have to know in 1961 that he's not doing this for monetary gain. There's not going to be a huge windfall that comes from this weird cinema verite hybrid documentary about Indians living in Bunker Hill. He's not doing this to get rich. This was an important story to tell, and he knew it, and he hung on to it and stuck it out until he was able to do it the way it deserved to be done. Homer talks at this point about this idea of his that white people have more troubles than the Indians do, that Indians are the roamers. They were the ones who were living off the land, but white people seem to just be worrying about everything all the time. He very definitely believes it, and this is why I say he occupies the space in between Yvonne and Tommy. He looks at that spot that he occupies as being the enviable position, the spot that he prefers to be in, rather than being affluent, for instance, and having all of the problems that he associates as going along with that. Where he is living, the space he occupies, he sees to be not superior, but definitely the preferable spot. He also says something that I do a little bit of interpolating with, which is this idea about some people going back to the res mm -hmm. after they have really burned their bridges here. Because I think of the life that they're leading, which is the the constant alcohol and the sexual flirtations and the borrowing money or not paying it back or any sort of mild violence that might happen. So it feels like a life, again, unmoored, leading to nowhere. The, just do whatever the hell you want because you've got no place to go back to, really. So you can engage in behavior that has negative consequences briefly, but who cares you'll be dead at some point anyway. That's how I read that. Or because you have this opportunity to bounce back and forth between old life, new life, old life, new life. You get a reset each time, and it just begins the cycle anew. There's a lot of stuff about cycles in this. The cycle of poverty, the cycle of Yvonne's prayers and how that is gradually dwindling as well, and how it parallels cultural ritual, how the repetition of things provides a sure comfort. Homer is an aspirational. He would much rather take part in this raise hell, go home, raise hell, go home, because there is a comfort in that repetition and because he has successfully, quote-unquote, done that enough times that he realizes, eh, I can sort of do this indefinitely. And for me as the viewer, all I can think is there is going to be a clear termination point. With Eventually. This. But is his termination point similar to 
determination point of Yvonne's spiritual life where it just gradually winds down like a clock until you don't pray anymore the old way. You don't seek that sort of solace. He's not going to come to some definite stopping point. Rather, it seems like he'll just continue to play this cycle out until his body eventually wears out or he gets in so much trouble that it changes. He goes to jail. I'm not sure why for me and specifically Homer, it feels more dire than that. It doesn't feel eventual. It feels like something's going to happen sooner rather than later. That he doesn't grow old gracefully. And this Mm. is, again, me most likely projecting my ideas onto him. He doesn't say that. He doesn't necessarily demonstrate that. He's not a crazy hothead. No, but he does say specific things that I think make sense that lead you that way. I think you make a good point because he does have that self-awareness that he is trapped in this, whereas the others don't demonstrate that. And he does specifically mention the futility of it, which I think... If you are aware of that, then that becomes frustration. He mentions in particular in one section that he just as soon get in a fight to have something to do. I don't see him as I see his father. I don't see him reaching the age that his father has. Okay. And that could be me not giving him enough credit. And I mean, we don't know. We don't see. We just have a very specific time in their life. Could be. He is a very different generation with very different aims. He took the opportunity to come to Los Angeles rather than stay in Arizona. I guess I think, again, really at heart, you can't drink that much forever. Some do and some don't live with it for that long. I have known a fair amount of old drunks. It was baffling to me how they lasted as long as they did. That's true. I think we can all point to those people. But you're right. The particular combination of circumstances that he finds himself in and the reason that a lot of this native population in urban centers were drinking tends to lead you so far down into that self-destructive territory if you are daily, regularly numbing these sensations, this feeling of being adrift, this feeling of being homesick, this feeling of being out of place, not belonging, having to deal with outright hostility face-to-face. There are things that, when you put them all together, sure, it makes sense that he wouldn't live to be a ripe old age. And as far as I can remember, I could be wrong. I don't think he talks about this family that is coming no, he into doesn't his life. It. So there's no talk of posterity. There's no, you know, what I'm doing for my kids, making something better. It does feel live fast, die young for me. I think that naturally leads us to a discussion of our third person, which is Tommy. Mm -hmm. We're introduced to Tommy in the bar for the first time. That's where we meet him with a group of other friends that are all meeting up and making further plans as to what to do with the rest of their evening. And he's the person who is going to chat up every single woman, wherever he is. He's a good time, Charlie. Smoothie and, is what I wrote. He fashions himself. Yes, I think that's more accurate. He he fancies himself that, whereas he actually comes off like every single gesture is borderline sexual assault. And he is at the far end of the spectrum, I feel like, in terms of cynicism and nihilism and despair. He has looked their particular circumstance square in the eye and has determined none of this matters. Time is going to be time, and I can pass it just as well out of jail as in jail. 
which he specifically talks about. This isn't just interpolation on our part. He mentions that he has been in jail. And it, for him, it seems like it's getting high and getting your kicks. Yeah. One of the most interesting aspects for me of Tommy's voiceover when compared to Homer's is how they each position themselves as being in the enviable position. Tommy's philosophy being a very extreme version of, like you said, live fast, die young. And whereas Homer finds it better to be where he is than be one of the white people with so many worries, Tommy claims it's better to be in his shoes versus the nine to fivers, the squares, the people who are tied down by conventional concern. Homer's solution that feels like looks to the past, simpler times, the old ways. There's a lot of that that comes up in Homer's conversation and the stuff that was culled from his interviews. Even though he knows he cannot go back, he sees a certain appeal and even, in his case, romanticizes some of that, the old times. Tommy is only looking forward. There is no going back. When you listen to him talk, do you have any inclination that he would ever consider going back to the reservation? Definitely not. And when we talk about the extreme idea of the live fast and die young, for him, it just seems like live fast, live fast, live fast, I'm never going to die. Mm -hmm. I also don't know that he necessarily cares where he is. It all seems like the same thing. This being a better place because more women, more booze, more dancing, more clubs, more drugs. So it strikes you that to him, native identity is nothing that enters into his consciousness. He is not thinking about it. Only in as much as it gets him access to those things, he certainly doesn't celebrate it, right? No, he does play a little bit later. He does participate in that. Oh, in the drumming and the singing, yeah. But all throughout, he's the person most clearly enjoying the non-native things, which is the rock music mm -hmm. and loving Fats Domino and all the music on the jukebox and the specific dance moves that he's got down. Those are more that kind of popular culture, really, okay. from a broader sense. He's also the person that wears the most prep school clothes to me, even though that's not exactly what they are. He's got the sweater with the shirt on and the chinos. I don't know. Cliff's got that sweet jacket that he just made all those payments on. That's true. That's true. But it stands out. And Tommy looks like he could be going to beach blanket bingo. Oh, sure. Exactly. I see what you mean. So he is the most assimilated, it seems like? I would argue that, yes. I would argue in favor of that. Excuse me. Tommy is still on his upbeat high at this point, And he's gotten a group of people together. And they're headed out to yet another location. And they stop at a gas station. This is where we have our actual first interaction with a white person. And that character is the gas station attendant. Mm -hmm. He actually speaks with Tommy's group. Mm -hmm. Tommy and the others, they're dancing in the lot. They're joking around, having a good time. And it's at this point when the gas station attendant is trying to get money to pay for the gas that a persistent idea that I had came a bit more into fruition, which was I was concerned that there was going to be some kind of violence brought from the outside white world. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't happen in this scene. In this scene. There is one instance where a couple of beat cops are arresting a guy. That's the only instance I can think of. But there's definitely no violence here. And the gas station attendant even calls one of the men, sir. And this is when Tommy is talking about this idea of doing time. It's the same inside a jail or outside a jail. 
and they even leave one of their party behind at the gas station. There's just, again, no consequences to any of this stuff. It's the same thing that seems like it's going to play out night after night. Yeah, I can imagine this being a loop stuck in time and it occurring over and over and over again, or variations on it. I imagine they're every weekend, at least, if not weekday evenings also, taking place this way, having the same conversations like Homer mentions, and how futile it would feel, and how... Your only armor is to either develop a technique like Yvonne uses where she's neither too up nor too down and just pragmatically moves straight ahead or in Tommy's instance where nothing matters. I think again about this idea of burning bridges. At some point, he's going to go through all of these women. It's not an endless supply. He's going to burn all of these bridges there, which, you know, then he'll be in jail for a while and come back out or not. But it's a pretty bleak existence to me. And here's where I think it ties in again to what you were saying about how any marginalized culture can relate to what's happening here. Any group of immigrants who has come to an urban area in the United States and has had to scratch and claw and make a community of their own, every one of them probably has a similar cycle that they go through. How many options are available to poverty-stricken, working-class immigrants in any city, regardless of where they came from. They're now at another bar, and we see some cops show up from time to time. This Mm. is the white presence, this authoritarian presence. And it's interesting in this specific bar that there's a little bit more of mingling of cultures, Mm -hmm. very specifically with a white man who seems to be of a more uh, flamboyantly gay nature. I think that's definitely what they're trying to convey, which I think says a lot about just what we were talking about. Cultures that have been marginalized and them having to scratch out a place where they can survive and socialize. It's interesting that the cops don't necessarily interfere at this point. They are almost as if they have people corralled into this place where they can keep them all in one area and keep an eye on them. And so you have this convergence of outcast cultures, gay culture, Indian culture, probably Latinos in there as well, I would guess, based on where it was. And you have a mix and an acceptance of one another that certainly wouldn't happen if any of these people tried to go across town to any of the white places, the straight white places, for sure. At this particular time, in this particular place, late 50s to early 60s, it is pre-cultural revolution as we knew it in the late 60s. You have the Stonewall Riots in June of 1969. You have AIM, the American Indian Movement, formed in July of 1968 in Minneapolis. So, like I've mentioned already, you don't have outward expressions of pride or organizations that you can look to to support you or for examples of how to stand up for yourself. Gays and Indians and a number of other minority groups were all either marginalized or uprooted, pride was a long way off for these cultures. And so they congregated in these places, it seems like at least in this film, as equals, separate equals maybe, but equal footing in terms of how society at large viewed them. I don't think that it was necessarily that harmonious. I think that gays within culture would still be more ostracized even at a bar like this. 
Though, okay. though I don't think either of either of what we said have to be right or wrong necessarily. No, I see what you mean. Much like the way, regardless of the minority group, the women are at the bottom of that ladder. In this group, in this bar, the gay characters are at the bottom of the social structure. And within this bar specifically, so we'll take this specific circumstance. Okay. It's not necessarily harmonious, but I feel like that's only because this character is very loud and he's clearly very drunk and he is dancing in the floor with a friend as well and he is moving people around and I think bumping into folks so it's not as though what happens here in a moment which is when some violence breaks out I don't feel that that's directed at him because he was gay Mm -hmm. but because he was being a pain in the ass in this bar oh sure yeah he was obnoxious and the fight that takes place he is not the object of that. But at the same time, I feel like specific directing choices focus on the fact that he does get up to dance with a male friend. Mm-hmm. We look at his feet. We see him mouthing things and leaning in to be physically affectionate with his friend as well. And that doesn't feel like a coincidence. No. And just as revolutionary in 1961, a thing to put on screen. You have a bar full of Indians, never seen it before. You have such an outward and obvious expression of a gay character enjoying himself and showing affection for another man. Can you think of anything else in 1961 that would have been that blatantly portrayed? No. And again, not the element that incites the violence specifically. It's more about the character. Mm -hmm. It was an interesting choice, I thought, to highlight his presence in the bar. What we don't see is this type of behavior or character from an Indian gay man. No. Homer is the catalyst of the violence. He finally gets his fight that was foreshadowed in his conversation earlier. So they take off before they could potentially get into trouble with the cops. And we cut to Yvonne, whose movie is now over, and she is walking home. We're sort of in the home stretch of everyone's evening. It feels like she's wandering, really. She's just looking at windows... Her voiceover in this point is about what she had aspired to have, which was getting married in a church. It's about 2 a.m. is the impression I get, because it sort of coincides with the bars closing down. It's very late to have been at the movies all night long, and it's even more incongruous to be window shopping. And to be a very young pregnant woman Mm -hmm. out on your own. She talks about this idea of having two girls and two boys, which all I can think of at this point was why this idea of going with these ingrained, ridiculous, perfect family thoughts, and you've got nothing to support it. In fact, you've got less than nothing. Everything is working against you. And where does it come from? And is it mostly just for women, and especially of this period, to still think about this idea of fulfillment being around having children? And she mentions the idea of raising the baby that's coming herself. And if her husband is going to change once he sees the baby. My favorite character moment of hers in the whole thing is right here when, in response to her own question, she very stoically just says, I don't know, I'll have to wait and see. She does mention in particular, prior to that, how she always wanted to get away from her own people. She wanted to feel different, which seems to be in direct conflict with what you were just talking about. This notion of a large family and perpetuating that cycle 
or do you ascribe that more to womanhood here rather than the culture that she comes from? I think a little bit of both. And more than anything, I wonder how could you possibly achieve that? Where are the tools for you to be able to be different? What would that even look like? Well, we have pointed out a couple of times that she is the one with aspirations. She is the ambitious one. And you have to have hope because otherwise, why continue? Why go on? Why perpetuate this futile cycle that the others recognize? Is she just completely self-deluded? Or do you think the power of her ambition is such that she will find a way to overcome the circumstances that she is in and at least, say, move up to lower middle class? That's the question that I wanted answered. I wanted to know what this dream was. And I guess essentially it's really just around home life. Mm -hmm. She's not saying, I want to go be an astronaut. Mm -hmm. She simply wants her kids, the four of them, to have more than she had. It's true. And it's easy for me at this point to look back and think that's just the perpetuation of that female cycle, really. That the aspiration, if you have it, still can't extend beyond the home life. Beyond wife and mother? Yes. Is her response in that way, though, not a direct reaction to moving away into the city? Is she not fighting against that loss of bond that she might be feeling, that all of the characters, it seems like, are feeling, that motivate their speeches that they're all reacting to in different ways, rather than her relying on the bond of her culture that came before she is instead creating her own with her family. She creates this thing that she will be in control of in as much as a woman could achieve in 1950 an expression of her autonomy to create a miniature culture out of her own home. Agreed. It's still no different than the sphere concept of the 1800s. Okay. That you control the home life and that's the only thing you're allowed to control. But... The same way everyone is doing that here. Specifically, I'm thinking of Homer talking about freedom, which is coming up here. It's the after hours thing. He's observing the cops and he's talking about what happens when the bars close and they're about to go to Hill X to have their 49. And he talks about a place where they can go be free. That's all relative, right? They're all trying to stake out a territory of their own can any of us do that? I know now as a woman in 2016, you have a lot more options than you did as a woman in 1958. But how relatively free are we ever, I guess, is the big question. Are they not each in their own way trying to stake a claim for their own mental and emotional territory, at least where they feel like they are in charge? I don't disagree with you. It just makes me sad that that is the only way that she can be in charge mm -hmm. and that there's never any question of you don't have to have a kid. Gotcha. I declared early on that I was going to try not to be strident. Right. And that's an element of that that is very depressing to me to this day and is hard to watch. Yeah. And context is very, very important and it doesn't make it any less poignant 50 more years later. Actually, 60, yeah. right? Now that yeah. we... Yes. Almost. Okay, so it's after hours. Yvonne is wandering her way home gradually after the movies, and Homer and Tommy and all of his friends have gone up to Hill X in Chavez Ravine for their 49. I didn't know what a 49 was. I had to look it up. 49 is where shit gets real. <laughs> 
Think in of the it, movie and in life. And in real life. Think of it this way. Say the traditional powwow, that's the party. 49 is the after party. That's where you go to get your snag on. And what is a snag exactly? Snag is the equivalent, I guess, modern day vernacular would be hookup. Okay. If you are in Oklahoma and you hear that, know that that's what they mean. And 49 songs are definitely different from regular powwow songs, just so you know. I didn't know. Yeah, there's a distinct difference between the two. So this is a place for them to reconvene, like Homer said, to feel free, to be out from under the watchful eye of the white cops, to reclaim a little bit of their heritage. They're not in a public setting, in a bar owned by someone else. They are in nature somewhat. They are singing and drumming. And for Tommy, he takes the opportunity to actually assault a woman. Yeah. And there's a moment early on at a different bar when a woman that we don't know and aren't introduced to is begging to get help and to get away from a man who's kind of wrestling with her Mm -hmm. in a bar booth. No one goes to her aid. Everyone watches this happen. And then when we're at the 49 and he's attacking this girl, he punches her. No one goes to help her. I told you shit gets real. And then some. Not to say that every 49 is rife with sexual abuse and men hitting women. That's not at all what I am trying to imply. But it is usually a much more out of control environment. That's just sort of the point of it. The thing I thought was interesting about this that underlined more than any other part of the film the cycle of repetition that takes place everyone when they arrive at this location greets each other like they haven't seen each other in years and you know full well they did this last saturday and the saturday before and the saturday before and the saturday before and they talk about doing it again tomorrow night Mm -hmm. i think it's really interesting as well that there are times when we cut away to the city lights below them, mm-hmm. which seems so entirely separate, almost like as if Monument Valley was the backdrop that these modern westerns would be played against. Mm-hmm. So unreal. It looks that unreal against what they are doing. It might as well be a million miles away. I think that's what contributes to my feeling that their congregation is artificial and more than a little sad because they are struggling so mightily, it seems like, to hold on to this piece of their culture, this type of gathering. And yet when I watch Tommy doing it, he seems like a fraud because like you mentioned, he is so assimilated mode of dress, his day-to-day concerns. I don't feel he's fully invested in this thing. I don't feel like he gives a damn whether or not tribal customs are carried on. He doesn't care about anything. And Homer doesn't look like much makes him happy, really, no, these he's... days. Not even the lack of highs and lows that we talked about with Yvonne. It's just that there's no happiness inside of him. Very passive, like you said. But regardless of the fact that neither one of them is that invested in it, see you next weekend. And so day breaks, and everyone starts to make their way home, and we arrive at the final scene of the movie, where they get back to their Bunker Hill apartment, and they are drunkenly staggering down the alley back towards home, Tommy with his arms around a girl on each side, Homer wrapped in his blanket, separated from the group like he often is. Frequently, Homer takes the opportunity to remove himself and just observe. He did that in the bar. He did that at 49. He's doing that now. And Yvonne is waking up 
and looking out the window because she hears them from where she spent the night after the movies she eventually went to her friend Marilyn's house who was the only nurturing element in her entire world it feels like I think there's a dichotomy with the women in the film so the ones who are married and either have children or don't have children are all completely separate Mm -hmm. they're either there taking care of the home or with each other building their own small community and the women we see out at the bars and at the 49 those are the single women Mm -hmm. and Yvonne has taken refuge with her friend she does this because her friend's boyfriend also will stay out for long periods of time so they have each other so her day starts with her waking up and seeing them coming home from the end of their evening as they are walking toward the apartment and she spies them through the window and just regards them with that same stoic demeanor that she has with everything she's not perplexed or disturbed or at least it doesn't show openly on her face nor is she glad to see that they're home safe or homer's back she doesn't rush out to greet him for instance it's just another day another day in the cycle starting all over again did you see anything else in her reaction no i think though what i was talking about earlier the childlike aspect of her because she's sleeping in the same bed with her friend Mm -hmm. and it really looks like she's just tucked up in her little cocoon and she just seems so impossibly young to be doing this thing And essentially, the dawn breaking again is the end of the film, but as you mentioned, just another day. We can imagine this repeating itself again and again. Sure, the DVD would actually be perfect if somehow it was programmed so that right here it went exactly back to the beginning of the movie. And now that we're at the end, and you've seen this now a few times, has the viewing changed for you at all? It's a rare case of, nope. Not in terms of the content or the message or its cultural significance. I notice other things. For instance, the cinematography in this case was something that stood out to me because I was so emotionally invested in the other stuff before. After having seen it a few times now, I can look at it just for the technical aspects. And if you are a fan of black and white photography, you would be hard-pressed to find more beautiful photography in the grittiest film noir. The stuff looks fantastic all these deep contrasts and all these rich blacks and shadows and light it is photographed so beautifully on what had to be a shoestring because like i said they ran out of money over and over again they did have the wherewithal the forethought to shoot it on 35 millimeter which is why i think it holds up so well after being restored but the thing is fantastic to look at as far as what the film says both within the film and about our culture at large That has not changed. It couldn't, because from the very first time I saw it, I recognized how important it was to me and how important I wish it was to other people, and it couldn't get higher. It started at the top of that for me, and so there's nowhere for that to move up. It still remains that important. I'd like to make another pitch for going out and understanding the context of this. It was a pretty devastating experience for me. Again, Yvonne being my touchstone Mm -hmm. and reading that the child that she was carrying ended up dying very young. Of diabetes. Yes. And I think again about termination and all its variations. Usually this is the part of the podcast where we talk about why we chose it, but obviously that's been peppered all throughout But there are a few things that I want to expand upon. Most of that going back to 
my grandmother being my touchstone, like I mentioned, and the place that it occupies within the culture to do a thought experiment to help people understand what these characters might be going through. I know it's probably impossible to fathom being the custodians of this land for so long and then not being anymore. And what a short time, relatively, that took place in. So I want you to think about, for instance, your great-grandmother. Did you have at any point in your life, was your great-grandmother or great-grandfather still alive? My great-grandmother was very briefly, one of my first memories was going to her funeral. Mm, Okay. So I was very young when Uh she died, and that was it. I was lucky enough, my great-grandfather and great-grandmother lived right down the street from me until I was 10 and moved into tribal housing. This is my mom's side of the family. So I got to see my great-grandfather and great-grandmother every day for years and years. And so if there are listeners out there that had a similar experience, they might be able to relate to some of these things. Okay, so phase one of this thought experiment is picturing your great-grandmother or great-grandfather, this great-grandparent whose stories you have access to. Okay, keep that in your mind as a listener or you in particular. Now, the characters in this film who are my grandmother's age, if they are doing the same thing, if they are thinking back to the stories their great-grandparents told them, their great-grandparents, if they were the ages of the characters, had they had ready access to a newspaper, could have literally read the account of Geronimo's capture. When I think about my grandmother being in the circumstances that this film portrays, because she could have easily been one of these characters, and the relative experience of her, when I imagine my great-grandparents and what I know from them, She could have, or any of the characters in this film could have, an experience where their great-grandmother told them about, yes, I read, I knew, or if you lived in the area where I lived in... Lived through it. You could have seen it. Geronimo, the Apache chief, was actually captured and held and died in Fort Sill, Oklahoma, which is 20 miles south of where I grew up, which is where both of my parents worked for decades, at Fort Sill itself. They both worked for the government there. And so as a kid, I saw Geronimo's cell. I saw his gravesite. When you try to picture being where these characters are and your own family's history stretching back not even that far, less than 100 years, to a time when you were the lords of the Southern Plains and you are now a worthless cog in this urban environment. The lowest of the lowest rung. It's so hard to fathom and so hurtful. So that's why these stories being told is so important. That's why representation is so important. That is why something as simple as us getting to portray ourselves is so important. When this took place, when this movie was made, we were at the tail end of 20 years or so of very specific legislation aimed at dismantling all tribal life. That pendulum started to swing back the other way, like I mentioned at the end of the 60s, when AIM started when there was this movement toward self-determination and the reestablishment of tribal governments. And actual pride in ourselves was something that we could latch onto and use as motivation for this reclamation. And so we find ourselves almost 60 years later with these questions of identity being even more difficult to answer than they ever were. Even with the swing back towards self-determination and the strides that have been made coming back from the termination policies, where do you draw the line in terms of preserving your native culture? 
does that mean something as radical as you want your own land which you completely govern? Is that something as simple as I want to practice my own shamanic religion in my home and not be interfered with? Because, for instance, in my neighborhood, we had a family that would set up a teepee in the backyard annually for peyote meetings. Is it something like I want to proactively educate and disseminate the culture among others, among other tribal members, among non-tribal members? How far do we go? Where is that line drawn? What does it mean, in particular in my case, to be Comanche in 2016? It's a complicated question, and it gets harder to answer all the time because essentially assimilation did take place. People have an idea of reservation life that is not entirely accurate when it comes to Oklahoma, at least. When I talk about living on tribal lands in Oklahoma, it's no different from you talking about living in your suburban tract housing, in most cases. So it's a really convoluted issue. Which leads to my recommendation. Well, I was about to say, I'd love to leave that as an open-ended question because we've been having so many interesting conversations with people. I would love to hear others' thoughts and how those questions might relate to whatever culture they are a part of. I'm especially interested in what my friends from home who might be listening have to say about it. If they've seen the exiles by now, or what they feel like, with some of them having much more Comanche blood than I do, what it's like for them now, how they still preserve these things in their day-to-day life, in their home, outside the home, what extent do they go to to make sure that that continues to live on? I've got friends who actually work for the tribal government. My dad worked for the Comanche tribe for a while as well, so we're closer to it than a lot of people. But I'm curious now that everybody is more spread out and off living their lives in other places, how it still resonates in their day-to-day life. I think that that's actually a natural segue to my recommendation. These questions of continuing identity and assimilation and choices available to you. I'm going to come back again to my touchstone of Yvonne. And she inspired this recommendation, which is Maria Full of Grace from 2004, which if you haven't seen it, is the story of a pregnant Colombian teenager who becomes a drug mule to make some desperately needed money for her family. Yeah, I have seen it. I really like it. Directed and written by Joshua Marston (laughs) and starring Catalina Sandino Moreno. Why I came to this. I think it's probably obvious at this point, thinking about an impossibly young girl making a decision, which is a terrible decision, I think, for your circumstances, but you might feel prescribed by. Mm -hmm. And in her instance, getting pregnant, we mentioned she was a teenager. She's got no options but the one that seems to be presented to her. So it's impossibilities. Stay in this tiny, tiny poor place and have a child as a kid or take this enticing offer that a smoothie brings to you and it's even worse. And it's quite a beautiful film. And how about your recommendation? My recommendation falls on that axis of questions about Native identity. And my recommendation is Smoke Signals from 1998. Which, in stark contrast to these two films that we've talked about, is quite fun in places. It's really funny and sharp and well-observed because Sherman Alexie wrote it. Yes. Can't be anything other than when he's involved. Directed by Chris Iyer, written by Sherman Alexie, and acted and produced by an entirely Native cast and crew. It stars Adam Beach, 
Evan Adams and Tantu Cardinal, and it's a road picture that is about resolving long-standing family issues, a struggle with your own native identity, and the thing I like about it most and the reason I recommend it is because it is one of the most honest and accurate depictions of natives as whole, real people. They're not symbols, they're not ciphers, they're not stand-ins or representations of a larger idea. They are actually fully fleshed out human beings. It's sweet and sharp and funny and tough and tender. It's really moving. I really love it and I hope everybody watches it. And I think when you talk about these larger themes that it goes over, it still manages to never get in its own way. Yeah. Which, otherwise it could have become sort of a message picture, for lack of a better term, and it never does. No, Sherman Alexie is so deft at that, that he can deal with all of these things without becoming ponderous. So read his books as well. The guy is incredibly talented. And if you want to know what it's like, To be a native in the 21st century, you won't get a better depiction of it than the things he writes. We managed to do it once again. Two great recommendations. (laughs) Maria Full of Grace and Smoke Signals. And that brings us to the end of another episode. If you would like to get in touch with us to talk to us about any of the ideas or questions that we raised in the show, you can email us at magiclanternpodcast at gmail.com. We are on Facebook and Instagram. Just search for our names in either of those places. We are on Twitter, at Lantern underscore cast. And I just wanted to take a second and thank everyone who either shared links to the show or were talking about us with other people who gave us feedback since last time. Mike Scharf, one of our Korean friends, Twitter user Fast Furious, the guys at FUDS on Film, Aaron and James at the Unabashedly Obsessed podcast. They recently did an episode about 80s movies, but in the middle of that got so sidetracked by talking about our Rebecca episode that I feel like we owe them 10 minutes of their podcast back. So thanks to them for mentioning us there. Tim Lego, as usual. And thanks to Leon Huxtable of the Yeah G'day podcast for inspiring this choice, actually. This came about after we had a conversation regarding indigenous peoples in Australia after we posted our Van Diemen's Land episode. We are also on iTunes and Stitcher Radio if you would like to track us down that way. I want to take a minute and say extra special thanks to Lucy Huber, Daniel Fern, Tommy Smurl, and iTunes user Anon34254 for leaving a whole bevy of glowing reviews for us this time. So thanks for the support, Lucy, Daniel, and Tommy. You guys are awesome. If you would like to be equally awesome and leave us a rating or review, or even just subscribe to the show, you can do the same via iTunes or Stitcher, and we are also on Google Play for you Android users. And finally, if you would like to check out all of our previous episodes, including supplemental material, you can find those at the website magiclanternpodcast.com. And thank you for listening to the Magic Lantern Podcast. 